Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Paradigm 132 Podcast, and I am your humble and gracious host, Rashad Horn, and on today's episode, we're coming again from the Dr. Thomas Old book, Discrimination and Disparities, and on today's episode, I will be discussing some of the, I would say, caveats or some of the information that I've never heard that was what I felt like was interesting and prevalent information that, that needed to be talked about as it pertains to the sudden migration of blacks from the south uh, to the north uh, right after the Reconstruction era. However, before I get into that, I had a technical difficulty, right? I recorded the other podcast, which uh, is entitled Defining Discrimination, um, that I recorded it uploaded it to YouTube. I thought I had an app on my phone that I could extract the audio away from the video, but the app that I had said that the file size was too big. So that particular episode will only be available on the YouTube channel, the Paradigm 132 YouTube channel. And I guess for future reference, when I do record a podcast visually, I'll make sure that I'm at home where I know that I have the hardware uh, available to extract the audio so that I can upload it so it can be streamed uh, as well as viewed uh, visually. So, uh, again, that's the Paradigm 132 uh, YouTube channel, uh, the newest episode of the podcast, Defining Discrimination. And just to give a short synopsis about that, uh, Dr. Soul um, basically took the word discrimination and he broke it down into two parts. And which each part he uh, defined them differently so that basically you get a a, a larger um, view or get a different uh, perspective uh, essentially about discrimination. Right. So I feel like I did a a, a pretty good job of um, bringing the point home as well as using examples that he had as well as using uh, real life examples that I feel like could um, individuals could um, basically relate to, right? But that's that. So again, that is entitled "Defining This uh, Discrimination," available on the Paradigm 132 YouTube page. So uh, go check that out. Now, moving on to this particular episode, right? So I'll be the first to say that. I've said this on the on previous episodes. I'm from Mississippi. I'm in the South, right? So anytime that I hear the years 1880, 1890, early 1900s, all those particular different things like that, my idea of the black experience is completely different than the idea or the reality of the black experience in the North, right? So obviously, I'm thinking about, you know, cotton fields, I'm thinking about, um, you know, the Klan, you know, images of Emmett Till, uh, situations with Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, just that type of stuff, Mississippi burning. Those are the images that come to my mind when I think about that particular time period that um, came after the Reconstruction era, right? And obviously, there was a time period where they had what we call the Great Migration, which is when um, countless amounts of African-Americans left the South 
uh, to go to the north in hopes of getting better jobs and having better living conditions. And um, personal story, my grandmother, um, she was old enough at that particular point in her life where she had a decision to make, whether or not she wanted to stay in the south or she wanted to migrate to the north. By um, all in all, she she opted not to, even though I believe all of her siblings and minus her and her um, one of her brothers, they opted to stay in the south and the rest of her siblings, you know, went to the north. I tried to ask my mom about it because by the time that I became like fully engaged in this particular information that I'm discussing with you now, uh, my grandmother had since passed, so I couldn't ask her, you know, personally, uh, what was her reasoning for not going to the North and potentially having a better life um, um, for herself, you know. But I didn't get that opportunity, right? So, moving on. So again, that's 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 my experience. That's that's my mindset when I think about that. However, reading this book, Doctor Soul breaks down some key some key caveats, right? Where obviously there were blacks up there before the Civil War. There were blacks up there after the Civil War, and these were blacks that had got there by way of the Underground Railroad or had purchased their freedom or other things that allowed for them to be free. Maybe they ran away, right? And they weren't captured and had to be immediately returned to the South. So they lived a different life. So after the world, after the Civil War, after, you know, Reconstruction and all these particular different things like this, those blacks up there, they ended up having children. They had children that were born in there. And so what Dr. Soul uh, hammered home or, or just brought home was the aspect that that minority group of African-Americans um, in those particular northern areas, whether those areas were um, Chicago, Cleveland, uh, St. Louis, certain areas like that, where they were the minority, they, assim- they seemingly assimilated uh, into the greater white society and in aspects where laws were not still um, against blacks, blacks and whites actually went to school together, right? So, as soon as I saw that, I thought back to Dr. George Washington Carver. And I remember I was watching Hidden Colors. I don't remember if it was one or two. It was one of the earlier uh, versions of it. And there was a school picture of George Washington Carver because George Washington Carver had got adopted by a white family in Iowa. And there he was, the only black kid in a class full of white kids. Right. Obviously, of course, like I said, he was an adopt. He was adopted. But still. At that particular point in time. Especially when we when we when we put the time frame together, that wasn't a southern phenomenon. That was things that were transpiring in the north prior to the Great Migration. So those individuals were living there, and Doctor Soul even 
even so much so, said that um, blacks and whites were actually living in the same neighborhood at that particular time, which is astonishing to me. Again, like I said, my uh, idea or or my perception about blacks is 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 completely southern based, right? And some of those same southern ideologies and same southern mannerisms are still prevalent to, to this day. May not still be overwhelming, but there but there's still hints of it, right? So what was so interesting is my my father's mother, which is my grandmother, uh, she migrated uh, up to Chicago. And as I read this particular chapter, I came to find out that the newspaper, the Chicago Defender, which was founded by Robert S. Abbott, uh, a black man, the Chicago Defender was one of the main catalysts that attracted blacks from the South up North. Uh, they took great pleasure in hammering home that the types of behaviors, the type, the type of white behavior that is exhibited in the South is not exhibited in the North. The lynchings, the, 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 um, poor labor conditions, all those particular different things like that. Those particular things are not happening in the North. So y'all need to get up and come to the North. Right. So what's interesting about this, right, is we can relate that to uh, today's times when we when we we when we have individuals that say, hey, look, if if I get in the door, I want to bring all y'all in the door. Right. But another key aspect that we have to keep in mind when we when we when we display that is the fact that everybody can't come. Some people are going to come in and they're going to mess it up, right? And so, like I said, the Chicago Defender was a catalyst, right? So droves of African Americans left the South, got on trains, came up North, um, and found work, found housing to live right now what ended up happening is it started making whites feel uncomfortable um for obvious reasons for one blacks are coming in so it's going to be more co- more competition in the labor force two the southern blacks are not as fine-tuned, right? That they're, they're still they're 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 rough around the edges. They're bringing the animosity uh that is displayed uh that black white relationship of the south, they're bringing it to the north. Right? And they haven't been assimilated just yet. So Dr. Soul said in response to this, you know, basically because the Chicago Defender labeled Chicago as the promised land. Right. So what ended up happening is laws started getting put back on the books. Now, before I continue now, we all know about Brown versus Board of Education, right? 1954. 
right? When it basically made it illegal uh, for, you know, black students to be discriminated against in, 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 in forms of going to uh, white public schools, separate, separate but equal ended. But like I said, Dr. Soul made it a point to say that blacks and whites were going to school together in the North, right? They had been assimilated, right? The behavior was completely different, but they were doing it in the North, right? So, seemingly, the North was somewhat progressive, right, in certain aspects. But this influx of black people changed it, right? So, and I noted on... um the previous podcast um, on the Defining Discrimination podcast, I said I wanted to do a little bit more research before I presented this information to you, right? So, the Chicago Defender, when you look up the Chicago Defender, you'll see how the Chicago Defender was was champion, championing um, blacks coming up north, right? They when they found out that the southern economy was being decimated because blacks were not working there, they they pushed even harder. Come on, it's 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 almost going. It's almost in the drain. It got so bad to the point that in the South they tried to stop the circulation of the newspaper. That. Anybody that they they mobs of mobs would go to train stations because they was because there were um, northerners that would come down and they would recruit blacks and say, hey, we got jobs for you up here. And they would try to find those particular people that would go to the train stations and, you know, attack blacks that were standing out there waiting for the train to come get them back because they 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 saw what was going on they saw that so many people were 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 leaving obviously when i read that maybe my grandmother may have heard some of those type of stories and may have felt and again she wasn't the only one there were there i'm sure there were a multitude of other blacks who just opted not to leave and maybe some of those particular stories were like you know what it's not worth it you know it's 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 not worth it but you know to some it was right so again with all this going on when you look up the chicago defender you see nothing ill worded towards black people from the south coming to the north everything was it was a utopia right so i'm going to read two things from uh dr soul's book in reference to the chicago defender right which as soon as i read these particular different these two particular things i like whoa 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 wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute now so the first uh it says the chicago defender a black newspaper was highly critical of the newcomers for behavior that gave blacks in general a bad name. So were other blacks from the pre-existing black community there and in other northern cities where both the existing black residents and the local black press denounced the new arrivals from the South as vulgar, rowdy, unwashed, and criminal. I'm going to read that last part to you again. 
Black residents, existing black residents, and the local black press denounced the new arrivals from the South as vulgar, rowdy, unwashed, and criminal. Now, again, this is this is the Chicago Defender, which if you look up anything about the Chicago Defender, you'll see nothing. But especially in the in the beginning, the Chicago Defender was nothing but uh, a catalyst, uh, a launching pad. Come to the north. Come to the north. You do not have to be subjected uh, to this hardship. Come to the north. Right. But. You had some that looked at it and said, wait a minute now. We started judging. These people are rowdy. They're vulgar, unwashed. And they got a certain criminal element about themselves, right? But again, like I said, we're dealing with individuals that after the Civil War was over, you know, and all these particular things like this, they were still down there. Again, we remember the Civil War was over for two entire years before a Union soldier came to a plantation in Galveston, Texas and said, wait a minute, hey, slavery's over. Right? So you could still probably imagine that there was still some animosity built up. You know, obviously there were some blacks that that by that particular point in time could read, could write and could do stuff like this and could really articulate what it was that was being said and like, wait a minute. We were free? Like, y'all made it seem like since we, and we, first of all, maybe didn't even know that a war was even going on. So I don't have to be here no more. So you 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 got to understand it. You also got to understand that hey, wait a minute, these people um, opportunities were not prevalent, right? So there were things that were going on, right? So reading the second part, right? So it says like other black newspapers in the northern communities, the Chicago Defender published many um, articles. To Southern blacks arriving, um, wait a minute, my bad. <laughs> Admonishments to Southern blacks arriving in Chicago, including don't use vile language in public places, don't allow yourself to be drawn into street brawls, don't take the part of lawbreakers, be they men, women, or children, and don't abuse or violate the confidence of those who give you employment, right? So, again, like I said, when you just look up the Chicago Defender, you don't see anything speaking disparagingly about black people that are from the South. You don't see that, right? So I stopped for a minute. I said, wait a minute now. You know, is this is Dr. Soul lying about this? Is this just, he just put this up here, right? So I, so I dug. I dug. I dug some more. I dug some more. And I found it, right? Now listen to this year. This is an article from May 17th, 1919. May 7th, 1919 from Chicago Defender. And the title of the article is 
where we are lacking. So basically, this particular article is basically a call to action for Southern blacks. Right. So in the second piece that I that I I read were some of the things that they wanted the Southern blacks to adhere to. Right. So I'm going to read just a few more from this particular article. And again, I want you to remember that this is 1919 when this particular information is being disseminated. Okay, let me start. It says, don't act discourteously to other people in public places. Don't spend your time hanging around saloon doors or pool rooms. Don't congregate in crowds on the streets to the disadvantage of others passing along. Do not violate city ordinance relative to health condition. Don't allow children to beg on the streets. Don't leave your job when you have a few dollars in your pocket. Don't work for less wages than being paid. People doing some doing doing same kind of work. Don't allow this. Now, again, this 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 is the one that really stuck out to me. Right. Because I'm thinking this is 1919. And this is the north. Don't allow children under 15 years of age to run the streets after nine o'clock p.m. Don't allow children under 15 of age, years of age, to run the streets after 9 o'clock at night. Don't throw garbage in the backyard or alley or keep dirty front yards. And this is the second one that, that, that stuck out to me. Don't appear on the street with old dust caps, dirty aprons, and raggedy clothes. This is 1919. Some segments of our community appear on the street with old dust caps. Dirty aprons could allude to clothing. You know, you know, raggedy clothing. And they had this issue in 1919. Old dust cap could be referred to as a as a bonnet. Skull cap, wave, you know, wave cap, anything like that. This is 1919. These are things that northern blacks wanted southern blacks that were just coming there to adhere to. Because going back to this, y'all are giving blacks in general a bad name because of these behaviors. Because y'all are arriving from the south as vulgar rowdy, unwashed, and criminal. And one of the biggest things, I'm, I'm going to read a particular stand. I'm going to read a particular uh, thing from up here that it it uh, it stood out to me, right? It says, so great a nuisance has it become that respectable women and young girls shrink from running that gauntlet of foul-spoken leering loafers professional and businessmen are loud in their complaints about these insects listen to how they were referring 
to Southern blacks, insects who block the entrances to their offices and stores, preventing ingress and egress. We have frequently called the attention of the police department to this intolerable nuisance, but for some reason have been unable to obtain any action. These are blacks in the north speaking about the influx of southern blacks because, again, y'all are vulgar, rowdy, unwashed, and criminal. So it's like, but again, nothing can be found of Robert Abbott saying any of this particular stuff in public or even having this going to publication. Nothing of this is coming from, this is coming from editors and, and, and other writers that are a part of this particular newspaper. And it's just, it's so interesting to read this, that this is from 1919. And one of the things that I, that, that, that we notice, right, even, even, even to this day amongst Northern blacks and Southern blacks, and that particular thing hasn't changed, is Northern blacks look at Southern blacks as Southern uh, and probably share these same particular nouns, vulgar. You're rowdy, unwashed, criminal. Now, obviously, you you know that that can that can go over there, but Northerners feel that they're smarter than Southerners, right? That they can potentially behave better, act differently. Some of the stuff that they see, right? So that is just so interesting to me because, like I said, prior to this. There were blacks that were going to school with whites when available prior to 1954. Prior to 1954, there were whites and blacks going to school together prior to Brown versus Board of Education, right? So listen, reading a little bit more from Dr. Soul's book here, right? This is in reference to the Pacific Coast, which is interesting because... When you read um, The Color of Law, one of the things that, matter of fact, the first information that you read about is the Pacific Coast, most ne- most notably the San Francisco area, where blacks were not allowed to live close to employment opportunities. Um, I think, it was, I don't know if it was a Ford plant or it was GM, but it was a big car manufacturer, and it basically broke about basically spoke about how blacks had to live so far away from the job in comparison to whites right so dr soul dives into this it says prior to the 1940s racial discrimination was not on the same scale on the pacific coast as in the south or as in northeastern cities after the great migrations there from the south In San Francisco, black children went to schools that were not racially segregated and the small black population lived in neighborhoods with whites, Chinese and other races. Now, this is now again, this is prior to 1940. This is prior to Brown versus Board of Education. Again, my 
mindset of 1890 in the early 1900s is Klan, Emmett Till, Mississippi burning, picking cotton. But in the North and on the Pacific Coast, we have black children going to school with white children. We are whites and blacks living together. Wow. Right. So reading a little bit more. Right. It says the great migration of the blacks out of the south that reached the northeast and midwestern cities around the time of the first world war reached the Pacific coast decades later during the second world war. In the 1940s, more than four fifths of the blacks who arrived in the San Francisco Bay Area shipyards came from the south. Usually the less educated deep south. Right. So obviously, again, you know, we got this education. thing, Right. So reading a little bit more and then we're going to we're going to we're going to try to we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. Right. So it says the new black arrivals were overwhelmingly more numerous than the existing black population. It said in Richmond, California, for example, there were only 270 black residents in 1940. But the Kaiser Industries or Kaiser Industries brought in more than 10,000. So imagine that. You got 270. That had basically, you know, they've been out there. They kind of know the lay of the land. Their children, again, like I said, their children were going to school with white kids. They were living in neighborhoods with whites and Chinese. And now you got 10,000 more coming in who basically have no ties or affiliation to you and again we're bringing that that rowdiness that 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 anger that bent up frustration from the south we're bringing it to the northeast we're bringing it out west because you that ship is still on the shoulder you 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 can't let your guard down right so it says the back population of Berkeley in the 1950 census were nearly four times what it had been in the 1940 census. So four times in a 10 year span. So a lot happened, right? Um, so it said over that time, over that span of time, the black population of Oakland rose to more than five times what it had been before. And that of San Francisco rose to approximately nine times it's 1940 level, right? So again, like I said, if you read the color of law, that is this is the first story that it speaks about. It speaks about blacks coming from the south. And I believe two of the individuals that they speak about in their particular book, I think they actually came from the Louisiana area and went out there, right? So again, like I said, missing pieces, right? So you know, I is is very important to get all the pieces together so you 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 can you can paint a, a whole picture, right? So I think there's one more that I want to read, one more thing that I wanted to read before I got out of here, right? Because this particular chapter in this particular book is basically talking about um, sorting um, individuals as far as how individuals can end up sorting themselves, right? But I don't think I can. Okay, I got this one. I got okay. I'm I'm gonna read these two last things and then I'm, I'm gonna uh, 
I'm going to wrap it up, right? So, it says in 19th century Detroit, blacks were not allowed to vote in the eight, in 1850. But they were voting in the 1880s and in the 1890s, blacks were being elected to statewide offices in Michigan by a predominantly, predominantly white um, electorate, right? So, it's, that's, that's not far-fetched, right? Because again, what we what we understand after the Civil War is over, we saw that there were blacks being elected into public office. We had the story of Charles Hanson, the the uh, myth of him being the first actual first president before George Washington, right? But this is what we have. We we have stories of or information that says that blacks were some of the forefathers or some of the creators and originators of the Republican Party. So obviously we understand that even with my uh, I don't want to say jaded, but even with my understanding of how, what I thought life was like for blacks during that particular time during Reconstruction we also got to realize that also this was during the time of uh, Tulsa, you know, Durham, North Carolina um, Rosewood, these particular areas where blacks after Reconstruction were able to make something of themselves and obviously we have some that um, you know, were elected to public office. We have the likes of W.B. Du Bois, who, you know, went off and became one of the more educated, or if not arguably the most educated black man um, of the 20th um, century, right? Or 19th century, um, to be exact. So, um, moving on, right? It says the 1880 census showed that in Detroit, it was not uncommon for blacks and whites to live next door to each other. Since the black upper class had regular social interaction with upper class whites and their children attended high schools and colleges with the children of their white counterparts. Again, this is before the Brown versus Board of Education, 1954. Right. So I'm going to get it on up out of here with a, with a, um, a piece of writing from W.B. Du Bois in the year 1899. Right. Uh, I said a growing liberal spirit toward the Negro in Philadelphia in which the larger community had began to brush away petty hindrance and to soften the harshness of race prejudice, leading, among other things, to blacks being able to live in white neighborhoods. Both contemporary and later writers, and this is uh, Dr. Soul saying, both contemporary and later writers commented on similar developments in other northern communities. I said, while black children in most northern communities had long been educated in racially segregated schools during the first half of the 19th century, if they were allowed to attend public school at all, this changed during the second half of the century. And I will finish it up with this last little quote, right? Um, it says, by 1870, those northern states that had excluded blacks from public schools had reversed course. Moreover, during the quarter century following the end of the Civil War, most northern states enacted legislation that prohibited racial segregation in public education. Most northern courts, when called upon to enforce this newly enacted anti-segregation legislation, did so ordering the admission of black children into white schools. So, obviously... This is not information that we hear about. When we think about integrating schools, we, the, at least to me, the image of George Wallace standing in front of these doors of the Alabama University basically saying, 
uh, you have to kill me before we let any blacks in this school. So that's 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 our recollection. But we're talking about 1870, where blacks and whites are going to school together. So, and I'm gonna end it on this note right here. It says there were not just coincidental mood swings among whites across the north. The behavior of blacks themselves had changed. So we're gonna we're, we're gonna delve a little bit. We're gonna delve more into this, right? In the in the next podcast, because I, I want to talk about uh, moving forward because um, it's just so much stuff in this in this particular book um, that is very noteworthy, um, and I feel like that. It puts information together that was, I felt like there were gaps or there were holes in the information. And it's putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, but I'm going to, what I'm going to do is, I said I, w- I was going to make all the rest of them um, about that. But I came across an article that I wanted to discuss and it was from the Washington Post so this is I'm just giving you a um a preface of of what I'm going to talk about um the title of the article from the Washington Post is called Systemic Racism Not $200 Air Jordan Suppresses Black Wealth um it's written by Sincerely Michelle so if you want to go ahead and uh read that article um ahead and and maybe get some thoughts about it but i'm going to talk about that particular article because i think at least in my opinion i think that these are the type of things that are damaging i feel like these are the type of things these particular type of articles take people off the hook right and so I'm, i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna delve uh, in that particular, into that particular article, and after that, uh, we're gonna get right back to uh, discrimination and disparities because I feel like I have probably about uh, maybe f- I'll just say conservative from a conservative basis. I have about three more podcasts um, from this particular book. Um, I think it's it's good reading, so if you got a chance to pick it up, go ahead and pick it up. But anyway. That's the end of that. Uh, it's another episode of Paradigm 132 Podcast. We'll be back to you again next week. And again, like I said, um, got the other episode. It's going to be coming out Thursday as well. Defining Discrimination. Um, available on the YouTube channel. And go back and if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to Missing Pieces. Um, right? So, and if I, I guess I need to give this series a name, right? I got a series... Is the Missing Pieces series, right? So, but anyway, so go check that out. Uh, check it out. Tell a friend to tell a friend. If you haven't already, uh, go like, subscribe, share um, the podcast. Um, and like I said, there's a couple of more podcasts on the YouTube channel. But like I said, we're going to get it. We're going to get them pumped out um, real good. So, again, see you again next week. Peace.